This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Hello, everybody. Uh, We are today observing the 20th anniversary of the attacks of September 11, 2001, a date not unlike December 7, 1941 or November 22, 1963, a once in a generation date where we all remember where we were when the planes crashed into the fields of Pennsylvania, the Pentagon, and the World Trade Center in New York. This is Alan Pierce. My co-host, Justin Pierce, is with me today for our uh, first of two-part edition of Workers' Compensation Matters, and we're delighted to have as our guest, uh, Kenneth Feinberg. Kenneth Feinberg is a nationally, if not internationally known attorney and mediator with a firm he founded in 1993, the Feinberg Group. He's perhaps best known, however, as the special master appointed by President George W. Bush to formulate and administer the Victim Compensation Fund, or VCF, an unprecedented system of financial relief passed by Congress a mere three weeks after the terrorist attacks. The story of this fund and its impact on the families of the victims and Ken himself is told most dramatically in Ken's book, What Is Life Worth? and the recently released movie that can be seen on Netflix entitled Worth. Thank you for being with our audience today, Ken. Glad to be here, of course. You know, it's hard to know where to begin and the profound effect it's had on all of our lives for the past 20 years. And it's hard to imagine that 20 years have gone by. Certainly changed everybody's life. And I'm sure it changed uh, yours. And you, before this and after this, you've mediated and apportioned monies for a wide variety of tragic accidents, both before and after 9-11. How did the Victim Compensation Fund differ from your other assignments? Oh, the emotion. You see, all of the other assignments involving tragedies, there was time to reflect, for emotion to dissipate a bit, at least. The 9-11 fund was so traumatic to the country, as well as the families and the injured victims, there was very little time for reflection. And as a result, the emotional overhang that accompanied the creation and the administration of the 9-11 fund was unique. It'll always be unique in my mind because the law and how we treated compensation and workers' compensation liens and medical liens all paled in significance to the emotional anger, frustration, uncertainty, disappointment of the victims and their families. And for that reason, more than any other, I think 9-11 stands alone. You made reference to Workers' Comp, and of course, our program here, Workers' Comp Matters, focuses primarily on Workers' Comp. And as you undoubtedly know, Workers' Comp has a very interesting history. And I don't want to stretch the uh, comparison between VCF and Workers' Comp too far because of the, the vast differences. But Workers' Comp and its origins is a way of somehow compensating an economic wage loss with dollars. And in return, there is a what we call a quid pro quo in which the employer who, who provides the workers' comp gets immune from 
from being sued civilly or in tort. And there is a parallel with the VCF and uh, perhaps I'll you can say, expand it. Yeah, yeah. I'll say there's a parallel. As a matter of fact, when Congress enacted the law and set it up for me to design the regulations and the uh, compensation, the first cousin that we looked at was workers' compensation, an administrative alternative to litigation. Not in theory, at least, non-adversarial. And we found tremendous structural similarities between uh, the process, the process, and the 9-11 fund. Now, where workers' comp became very problematic, and we quickly solved it, the statute laid out all of these offsets that had to be deducted from the special master of the administrator's calculations. And we saw that in some cases involving, especially World Trade Center employees, the workers' comp liens could dwarf the amount being offered and threaten the whole viability of the program. So we had workers' comp processes, procedures, but we had to confront front and center the implications of comp liens on calculated value. And of course, overlaying this, uh, workers' comp really compensates one aspect, the so-called economic loss that can be measured with a calculator or a pencil. The non-economic loss, which you can get into later, is where a lot of the emotion and a lot of the frustration came in. But you see, it wasn't even that simple, Alan, because what we found is that those in grief families, and physically injured victims, they didn't want to listen or appreciate notions of economic loss that's every day in the courtroom. I mean, it happens every day. And we weren't going to get into the the, uh, the situation where everybody getting paid would have a different calibrated pain and suffering and emotional distress component. So it was challenging, I will say, but we solved the problems. Yeah, the families, among others, have claimed that the allocations were neither fair or just. And how did those concepts, fairness, justice, impact the nature and the amounts of the awards? They had no bearing on the amounts. I tried to convince families over and over again, don't even talk about fairness or justice. What's fair or just at providing money for a lost brother or a lost son or a lost daughter or a lost husband? I mean, I uh, learned very on in my career that when you start talking about fairness and justice, you're entering a world where it's going to be pretty hard to defend those concepts. I spoke about mercy, not fairness or justice. Mercy in the federal government and the taxpayer, the American people, ponying up and providing the dollars, not private money, that would be used to compensate. And that's why I felt it so such a great choice on your part that you separated out the citizens who ponied up charities, billions of dollars in charities as not being offsetable. I thought that was a brilliant idea. Well, it was a brilliant idea forced on me, I must say. <laughs> when we went and spoke to the charities, Robin Hood Foundation, for example, the Twin Towers Fund. And when we told those charities 
you know, under the law, we may have to deduct charitable contributions. They looked at me and said, Mr. Feinberg, if you do that, we're going to hold up distributing any charitable funds till all of your money has been distributed. And if you want to be responsible for delays of three years or more in getting charitable money out the door, all you have to do is, is announce you're going to deduct and we're going to hold off. Well, we blinked in five seconds. We weren't going to be politically responsible. And I exercised my discretion and announced that the statute was sufficiently vague so that we would not deduct charitable giving. Let's roll back three weeks after the 9-11 tragedy, Congress passed the Victim Compensation Fund, and thereafter, a search was made for uh, a special master. And you were selected. Uh, You perhaps might have thought of yourself as an unlikely candidate. And uh, so who was you? Who were you answering to? And how did you come to the decision to take on this challenge? Well, there was never any question in my mind that I would take on the challenge if asked. When I read about the new fund and its search for a special master to administer it, based on my prior work, as you know, Alan, working for Senator Kennedy, it was an easy call for me as sort of a a patriotic obligation. I felt that there were probably thousands, maybe millions of Americans that were looking for a way to help these folks. And so I went to Senator Kennedy, and he then went to my friend, also Republican Senator Chuck Hagel of Nebraska. Together, they approached the White House, President Bush, and importantly, Attorney General John Ashcroft, who had the ultimate authority to select the special master. And they urged John Ashcroft to interview me as a bipartisan a political person close to Senator Kennedy, not close to the Bush administration. And uh, the attorney general uh, offered me the position. You know, Hollywood loves a David and Goliath story. Uh, I do, and most of the general public does. And in, in, at least in, in uh, recent fiction, we've seen Civil Action, the story of the uh, uh, the contaminated soil here in Woburn, Massachusetts. We've seen Aaron Brockovich, the, these Series where there are victims going against the big part, the Goliath, the David versus the Goliath. You know, having read uh, your book and, and seen the film, your experience almost seems to be a David and Goliath story, but in the reverse. Here we have uh, Ken Feinberg and the federal government really being David and the Goliath being the families, the emotions surrounding the families. How as a human being, did you feel that way? Did you feel somehow in order to convince the families to opt into this VCF system as opposed to a tort remedy? Tell us how that affected you and what that process was. Congress really laid down the, uh, the, the, the ground rules. Congress decided we want to create an alternative to the litigation system. And the attorney general said, and Ken Feinberg will deliver on that promise of the federal government to make it easier, more efficient, less costly, more certain. So let's set it up. I didn't really feel like David versus Goliath. I felt more almost like a proselytizer to try and convince families in grief 
that the devil you don't know, this new fund, is preferable to the devil you do know, the litigation system, trials, lawyers, judges, juries. And it really was an educational undertaking that I went around the country, numerous town halls in Boston, LA, New York, Washington, and went about trying to convince very skeptical, emotional, angry people that when it came to at least financial assistance, this fund would work. And it took me a while. It took me quite a while. A 33-month program, I'll bet you it took 25 months before people really began to rally around the program. I think you had a time deadline. You had to get a certain percentage of these families to sign on from reading your book. I didn't realize it really went down to the wire before they started to come around. And you had some folks on the other end pushing them in another direction. That's true. Now, let's take make sure that when you re- refer to the movie Worth, there's a little dramatic license. I think so, yeah. You know, you got to make this exciting so that people won't leave to get some more popcorn or something. No, there was no statutory minimum number of people that would have to participate in the program. But, but it's true. We were determined to try and vindicate Congress in its hope that the great majority of people would opt into the program. At the end of the day, 97% of all the families that lost a loved one on 9-11 opted into the program. Only 94 people only 94 people litigated in the courtroom. And they all settled their cases five years later. There was never any trial or anything about 9-11. Now you're right, and you know this from the workers' comp world, what we found in the 9-11 fund was a little bit counterintuitive. 60% over half of all the applications in the 9-11 fund came in in the last six months of a 33-month program. People procrastinate. They waited. They hemmed. They hawed. They didn't say no. They didn't say yes. They watched. They observed. They were unable to make decisions. And in the last six months, over half the claimants looking at the statutory deadline opted into the program. And it's remarkable in the similarities and how it mirrors the sort of establishment of the workers' compensation schemes in this country, in that people were suing, it was taking years for them to get to trial, sometimes they'd get nothing, sometimes they'd die before they ever got heard in court. So the states adopted these plans, if you will, to give a certainty to to loss in the workplace. And this is what the fund did for so many people, was there was some certainty that they were going to recover something for the loss. And should this be tried again, would you think, in in future tragic events? What is your feeling about whether this should be adopted and tried again? Absolutely not. Really? Oh, no. This program was a success. It worked just as Congress intended. Don't do it again. The idea that you're going to create a special compensation system just for a select number of people, everybody else fend for yourself. You're on your own, judge, jury, courtroom. But for this group, a speedy, efficient alternative uh, to the legal system. Now, 
I must say, you should have read some of the letters I got back in 2001. Dear Mr. Feinberg, my son died in Oklahoma City, a domestic terrorist. Why aren't I eligible for this fund? Dear Mr. Feinberg, you got to explain something to me. My daughter died in the basement of the World Trade Center in the original 1993 attacks committed by the very same type of people. Why aren't I eligible for this fund? And it wasn't just terrorism. Dear Mr. Feinberg, I'm at a loss to understand. Last year, my wife saved three little girls from drowning in the Mississippi River, and then she drowned a heroine. Where's my check? The idea that public money would be used just for 9-11 victims? Bad things happen to good people every day in this country. There's no 9-11 fund. I want to uh, just add uh, a coda to Judd's question. Not only did this fund compensate these victims, but there was a huge problem if there was no such fund and the World Trade Center or the airline industry were to be faced with tens of thousands or tens of thousands of claims. What would that have done? Well, Congress certainly felt, Alan, that that could drive the airlines into bankruptcy and threaten the entire economy. If there was every day in the courtroom a repetition of all of these lawsuits and allegations and charges, so no doubt, no doubt, this 9-11 fund was promoted and urged upon by the airline industry and the World Trade Center. Now, having said that, Alan, I must say you could have limited lawsuits and made lawsuits extremely unattractive without providing each family who lost a loved one an average of $2 million tax-free. But uh, you're right. There's no question that it was a, a, an important moving force. And did you find that some of the families felt that motivation eclipsed the value to them, that, that perhaps in the early stages, this fund was established more as a, a way of Congress bailing out industry at the expense of the families? Did you have to overcome that hurdle? Yes, yes, yeah. you're right. Okay. Ken, can you tell us, was there a limit to the dollar amount, or did you set that dollar amount within your broad, unfettered discretion? The latter. Congress authorized that whatever I felt was necessary to incentivize victims and their families to opt voluntarily into the program, I had that authority. And I had delegated to me the calculation. There were no caps. I exercised my discretion very wisely, I thought, after Senator Kennedy whispered in my ear, Ken, this is public money. Make sure that 10% of the victims don't get 90% of the taxpayers' dollars. And what I did was, in my discretion, I brought down the high-end Cantor Fitzgerald multi-million dollar claims, brought up the low-end waiters, busboys, firemen, soldiers, cops, and it resulted in $7.1 billion paid out in the aggregate. The average award for a death claim was $2 million tax-free. The average award for a physical injury claim was $400,000 tax-free. 
And that's how I tried to minimize the inequity, perceived inequity, of high-end versus low-end wage earners. Yeah, one of the things that really came out in both the film and the book was the differences in how the families reacted to your best guesstimate, as it were. Can you explain a little bit about the differences in terms of the groups that you were speaking with, if people were appreciative or, or very, very much not appreciative of these results? The latter, no one was appreciative. No one was grateful. Nobody thanked you. You don't expect that. These are people weeks, months after the attack, nobody, their husband turned to dust at the World Trade Center. No. What saved the program and made it so successful was the empathy and the sensitivity we showed by meeting privately in confidence with thousands of families. I met with 950 myself and listening and, and, and being empathetic to the tales of woe that we heard made all the difference to the fund. Why were those conversations transcribed? Why, were there, why was there a steno or a recording made? Because we wanted to make a record. Most of the families wanted a copy of that transcript to put in a safe deposit box for future generations. But beyond that, we wanted a record in case there was some family or some physically injured victim trying to make a case for additional compensation. We wanted to make sure we had that on the record to go back and have the accountants look at it, et cetera, to see if we should and could adjust the amounts. Leo Boyle and the trial lawyers represented 1,500 of these families pro bono around the country without compensation, and they were solidly behind our efforts to um, help these folks. And I'm glad you mentioned Leo Boyle. This is, as I mentioned at the introduction, this is one of a two-part episode of Workers' Comp Matters, and we will be interviewing Leo Boyle who was then the newly uh, appointed or elected uh, president of the American Trial Lawyers Association. And little did he know that shortly after being sworn in as president, this would happen. And you mentioned that uh, he and his colleagues, by the way, Judd and myself included, uh, because we handled some of these workers' comp claims pro bono here in Massachusetts, but you also and your staff work pro bono. And tell us, uh, tell us the appropriate reasons, the decision that you made that a condition of accepting this role as special master. Patriotic duty. That's the high road. Yeah, we, I felt it was a patriotic duty. But I must say, the idea in confronting very angry and understandably emotional people, the idea that I would have to explain to them why I'm getting paid to provide compensation for the loss of a loved one, I thought that would be political suicide. It made absolutely no sense that, that I'm making money off an injured or a dead victim. I just didn't think that was strategic or wise. So for those reasons. I can only imagine that these 900 plus interviews you had and the other probably a thousand interviews your staff had had a cathartic effect on the families. That this was a, I think I uh, saw the word somewhere, an exorcism of sorts of this uh, devil that r- was in their souls. Well, um, now you're an armchair psychiatrist. I'm not what? sure about that. Okay. I'm not sure about that. I don't think there was much we could do other than give them an opportunity to be heard privately. 
mm. that would have much effect or exorcism on the horror or what the uncertainty of what they confronted. I don't know, but. Okay. Well, you did, you, you did describe your own role as requiring the wisdom of Solomon, the skill of H&R Block, kudos to H&R Block for that, uh, and the insight of a mystic with a crystal ball. I mean, there was sort of all of that rolled into one and overlaying all of that was raw emotion, anger, grief. And you got to experience families and how the financial impact of the loss of a loved one or a, a, uh, a breadwinner or what effect that had on families. And you saw people at their best and at their worst. I think that's right. I think that's right. And the, and the reaction of families that I met with or physically injured victims was as diverse as human nature itself. You think you can expect what you're going to hear, believe me. When families came in or injured victims came in, one man came in with, with third-degree burns over 85% of his body with the artificial skin on his limbs. Um, just, just horrific. You know, there were some other unexpected or perhaps unanticipated complications here. First of all, you had to determine who might be a valid uh, recipient among family members and perhaps family members who were not getting along before before the injury or death. But you also had people from other countries and the laws of those other countries. You have had undocumented workers at the World Trade Center and elsewhere. What policy decisions did you make regarding, for example, the undocumented? We'd follow the, the law of the domicile of the victim. If that law precluded same-sex partners or others from getting compensation, we worked out. I put on my mediation hat and worked out settlements between competing family members or friends. We followed the, the, the will, uh, the executor, the will of the, um, of the victim. And we managed in almost all cases, not all, you saw the movie, there was an example where we could, but we, 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 we were able to negotiate a resolution where family members were at odds. What strikes me about that time in our lives, I was not too far out of law school and to see all the lawyers, as Alan mentioned, put a moratorium on lawsuits, folks getting into the military because they want to help and they think that's the only way and the best way for them to to show some unity. There is a sense of unity that is not common among our populace now. So how, Ken, do we get that back without having that, to go through a trauma like this? That is the $64 question of the entire broadcast. What I like about the movie is for younger people to see that just 20 years ago, not a century ago, 20 years ago, the country rallied behind the victims. One community, no red state, blue state, no liberal conservative, no Democrat, Republican, apolitical, bipartisan, everybody behind it. And people should see the movie world and recognize that it isn't such a leap of faith to think that we should be able to do that again, and not in times of tragedy. We should be able to work out differences now. That's the great lesson, I think, and value of the movie and what we did. And you worked with Senator Kennedy and you talked about his relationship with Senator Hatch, right? And their their relationship, bipartisan, finding ways to, I mean, the Congress passed this bill, this act so quickly. I mean, much to your chagrin, I'm sure you wish you probably had a little bit more substance in there. 
it wasn't the substance that the, the trouble, as I said earlier, the trouble with enacting a law so quickly after the event is the raw emotion. There's no time. Countless family after family would say to me, you're giving me $3 million. They haven't even recovered my wife's body. All we got was her left arm. I mean, horrible stuff. But I think if Congress had waited much longer, they probably wouldn't have done this at all. And I don't want to uh, draw an unfair comparison, but we recently had Congress act within a, a number of weeks and establish the PPP fund for businesses and uh, individuals and a lot of criticism there that there wasn't a whole lot of thought and process and it was just dumping money into the system and let it percolate down. That happened quickly and it happened out of emotion. Do you see some parallels there with That's uh, right. what we've gone through? And, and, and you see the 9-11 fund, they, the Congress basically bucked everything to me. It was a unique statute. We don't know how much money is going to be needed. We don't know what the rules should be exactly. We're not sure about the details, but we got somebody who will decide that. No committees, no appeals, no access to the courts. We'll just trust this guy. And, you know, it worked. But I don't view it as much of a precedent on political science grounds, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I just really wanted to thank you. You know, I, I saw you on a on a webinar last week with, with Michael Keaton, who plays you. Doesn't handle your accent quite as well as you do, Ken, I must say. You did. You but, handled it much better. <laughs> but it's a terrific movie. You wrote an amazing story. And in an article today in the New York Times, it was stated that, quote, the great crises in U.S. history have often inspired the country to great accomplishments. And I think that you are a great accomplishment, not only to Brockton, the city of champions, where you're from, when we can add you to Rocky Marciano and marvelous Marvin Hagler now on, on their uh, welcome sign, but, but to, to, the, to the country. Uh, so thank you very much for sharing some time with us today. And thank you very, very much. An honor to be here. Again, thank you on behalf of Workers' Comp Matters, our audience here at Legal Talk Network. Tune into our next show with Leo Boyle and go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.